The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're studying uh, the Trinity, and we're, this is our Acts seminar on systematic theology. This is the only game in town tonight. Uh, pretty soon we'll be getting going with our regular Acts schedule. But in systematic theology, our over, overarching goal should be to know God. That is our desire. That is eternal life. When you think about it, John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So a hunger and a thirst to know God should be at the center of our every, every existence, every moment of our existence, every day. We should be yearning to know more of God. And there are different ways to know God, aren't there? We can know facts about God. Facts. What is the source of uh, facts about God? Where would we find out facts about God? From Scripture. From Scripture alone? Well, we can learn some things about God uh, looking at creation, right? But ultimately, our best understanding of God comes from studying Scripture. All right? Is that enough, though? Is it enough to know facts about God? No. What more do we need? We need faith. We need a personal relationship with God. We need an intense walk with God. And once we've tasted that the Lord is good, once we've seen the power and the majesty of His person, we're never satisfied again. We're always hungering and thirsting for more and more of God, aren't we? Should be. And Jesus said, if anyone is hungry, let him come to me and eat. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He said to the uh, woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, uh, whoever believes in me uh, will have a spring of water welling up to eternal life open up within their heart. So you can go drink whenever you're thirsty. And so there's going to be always this kind of a cycle of thirst in the Christian life and then God satisfies it. And the center of all of it is a hungering and thirsting to know Him, to know God Himself. And that's what we're about tonight. And we're going to be learning some facts about God. We're going to be looking at some scriptures. But ultimately, I want you to look past the printed page, past the words printed on the page, to the reality behind it. Now, we're studying God. This is the section, a subsection of our uh, doctrine of God. We began by studying the attributes of God. The attributes of God. These are descriptions of God, adjectives, perhaps, that we could put to God, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. There's a bunch of attributes all in one place. Um, or God's sovereignty, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's strength, His power, His omniscience and omnipotence, omnipresence, all of these things. We came up with 25 attributes. Hi. Yes or no? 745, he'll meet people in Providence. All right. Nobody could set up for, for sure. There's nothing set up? Nobody could meet, but there's okay. a lot of people that need to still. All right. Talking about outreach. Any of you are interested in going on outreach tonight? Uh, 745 down uh, near the parlor, if not in the parlor. I'm never quite sure what groups have the parlor. So, or the um, uh, the conference room. Either way, they're in the same place. So just go down there and we'll be giving out names for outreach. Uh, I always forget that at the end because everybody gets up and mills around. Yes? I don't think so. I think we're okay. Thank you for reminding me, though. That was, that was good. But Southeastern said we're okay. 
Thank you for reminding me. So we're studying God. Now, I think what we're going to do is we're going to put together, little by little, a sense of the doctrine of God. And that would be a, uh, the agglomeration or collection of attributes, 25 attributes and more. If you can find any more. Have any, any of you found any more than the 25 that we studied? Maybe you have. I don't know. I haven't found any others, but maybe there are some more in Scripture. Uh, but at any rate, those attributes of God combined with the study we're in tonight and we're in also last week, this gives us a wholer or more complete picture of the doctrine of God, the God of the Bible. And what are we studying tonight? The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that our God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And actually, you could have all of the attributes and not have Trinity couldn't you? You know, you could study all of those and, and many of them I think the Muslims recite in their listing of the attributes of Allah. Many of them that God is omniscient and omnipresent and that he's powerful and, and all of these things, sovereign. But uh, he's not triune. This is what se separates our God very quickly from the God of the rest of the world, uh, uh, Allah or any other God. We believe in a mysterious God. And so we talked last time about the doctrine of the Trinity. It is impossible for us to comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. Comprehend means completely take it in. In other words, to take it in and say, I totally, I mean, I've got it. I've got it down. I've mastered the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't. It's very, very difficult. But yet we can understand what the Scripture is saying. Now, we began our study last week by uh, talking about our definition of the Trinity. Uh, you've got in your, any, anybody missing a handout? Anybody need a handout? Okay. Um, any still floating around? There's some in the front. Way in the back, Christine needs one. And there's a few over there. Okay. Look to the, to the graph or the charts on the back. And you're going to see the second, not the last one, but the second to last one that looks like the triangle. You see here? This, this diagram represents a summary of what the Bible says about the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you see it? Triangle with the circle in it. We are not going to become a secretive religious heresy or cult where you need a you know you need all these little symbols and it's going to be on your forehead right or on a sash that you're wearing. we're not doing that this is just a, a form of communication of biblical doctrine that's all we're organizing uh, the doctrine of the Trinity all right so if you look at it it's a summary of basically three doctrinal statements right here the first is right in the center what does it say right in the center one God all right first of all there is one God. That goes without saying. Why would we be here tonight if there were no God? If we're all the atheists, we should just go home. There's nothing to talk about. Some people think that God talk is foolishness. All right? But we don't believe that. We believe that there is one God, but we go beyond that. There is one God and only one God. We do not believe in many gods. We're not polytheists. We believe that there is only one God and He is so high above His creation. He's far above. He's high and lifted up, separate in one sense in that way from His creation. He is a sovereign king. He's an emperor. Have you ever read the uh, account of uh, Ezekiel's vision of the likeness of the glory of God in Ezekiel 1? It's an unbelievable thing. I read it to my kids recently. And that's what it says at the end. This was the vision that Ezekiel had of the likeness of the glory of God. Do you see the steps removed that he is? This isn't his vision of God. No way. 
Because no one can see me and live, God said in the Old Covenant. You cannot survive. But this is the vision, the likeness of the glory of God. And it's incredible. But one thing you get out of that, you should read it. Go home and read Ezekiel 1. It just shows how God defies language. You really can't describe perfectly what what is seen there. But there's one thing. Is there all these living creatures and these wheels within wheels? And then there's a, uh, an expanse, you know, a firmament or something. And then above that... There's a throne and above that is this one glowing figure sitting on the throne. There's a sense of loftiness. He's so high and above everything. This is our God. So this is what we believe. We believe that there is one God and we believe there is only one God. That's at the center, right? But we're going to go beyond that. At the you know, apexes of this triangle, we've got the names Father, Son, and Spirit. These are three persons of the Trinity. And so another aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Father is God. So if you look at the triangle, you see the word Father, okay? And they see the, the line going down to the center, is. You see that? So the Father is the one God. You see that? The Father is the one God. Then you look at the lower left-hand side, apex, and you see the word Son or Jesus Christ, Son, the Son, and then there's a line going back up to the center, is the one God. And then the Holy Spirit is the one God. The Father is the one God, the Son is the one God, and the Spirit is the one God. But then along the sides of the triangle, you have the third aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. Namely, that we have separate persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They're separate persons. If you can use the word separate, it's hard to use the word separate. I told you it's difficult to speak this way. But they are distinct persons, let's put it that way, such that a conversation could be had between father and son. You see that? They're, they're distinct persons. So the father is not the son, the son is not the father. The son is not the spirit, the spirit is not the son. And the father is not the spirit, the spirit is not the father. There it is. These are the three aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you see it? There is one God and only one God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are equally that one God, and yet they are distinct persons. There it is. Can you understand that? Can you comprehend that? Can you take it in? No. Can you accept it, though? Can you accept it by faith? I'm asking, are you a Christian? Because that's at the core of our faith. So this diagram, I think, is very, very useful for organizing the doctrine of the Trinity. Any questions so far? This is all review, things we covered last time. Another thing that we covered is that this doctrine is most definitely a doctrine of revelation. What do we mean by that? That the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine of revelation. Yeah, Bob, go ahead. Yeah, it's, put it this way. Let me phrase it this way, if I might. That, that were it not for, for scriptural text, we would not be able to figure this out. You can't sit in a room somewhere and think up the Trinity because it really runs, in some ways, counter to our intu intuition, runs counter to our reason. We would not think this up. Doesn't that give you, since the Bible does teach this, a sense of the divine origin of the Bible? We wouldn't have thought up a God like this because it doesn't make sense to us, okay? So I think that's encouraging, all right? It is a doctrine of revelation. By that we mean you cannot, you cannot learn in any other way except that God reveals it to you. And he does it in two ways, okay? By the written word, but then directly to you by the power of the Spirit. You will not accept this if the Spirit doesn't make it clear to you. You'll reject it. You'll think of it as foolish, 
Okay, so this is a doctrine of revelation. Well, we also talked about how this doctrine has been progressively revealed to us. What do we mean by that? Well, it was not clearly revealed in the Old Covenant. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of the heroes of the Old Testament did not have anywhere near as clear concept of the personhood of God as we do sitting here in this room tonight. We have a more clear revelation. Why is that? Because the doctrine of the Trinity is only hinted at and there's only room made for it in the Old Testament. But it's clearly taught in the New Testament. Do you see that? It's a mystery. And so there was just just uh, indications of the doctrine of the Trinity. What were some of those indications? Do you remember any of them? What were some of the indications or preparations for the doctrine of the Trinity? Let us make man in our image. The plural speaking, let us make man in our image. Okay. And, and also the name of God, Elohim, is a plural ending some point to that. We didn't mention that last time, but that's in there. What else? What are some of the other indications in the Old Testament? Do not take your spirit from me. Okay. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's, well, that's, that's a good one. We're going to talk more about the person of the Spirit tonight. But uh, definitely. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I think that's, well, that's good because it connects to the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis. And shortly thereafter, in connecting with what uh, Dr. Hatcher just said, the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. Well, who's the Spirit of God? Yes. That's right. And we spent a lot of time on that last time. The angel of the Lord revelations. You remember? Who is the angel of the Lord? You know, well, we believe, I think, second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ before he took on a human body. And so he just appears and just things, strange things are said about him and by him. And, and interesting things happen. So that all of this, I think, prepares the ground for the doctrine of the Trinity. And some verses too. Some verses. Any verse you can find which you could use to prove the deity of Christ from the Old Testament is a preparation for the doctrine of the Trinity. You understand that? So the Son of Man verses or any of the things that are quoted, Psalm 1, 1, 10, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a proof of the deity of Christ. Uh, these verses, which we're going to talk more about when we get to the deity of Christ, are preparation for the doctrine of the Trinity. But we don't get the full revelation until we get to the New Testament. Okay? Now, look, if you would, in your outline... <clears throat> You know, if you want to look more carefully at the verses, they're all there in your outline, Son of Man and all that. But uh, on page 4, we have a series of verses which mention the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we're not on shaky ground at all. There's actually a, a great number of these, um, of these Father, Son, and Spirit verses in the New Testament. These are just some of them. For example, um, Matthew 28:19 says, "Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." One name, three persons. It's not an accident now. It's not in the names of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. So that's a clear indication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, then you've got um, uh, 2 Corinthians 13:14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That, you've heard that benediction, haven't you? That's a Trinitarian benediction. Father, Son, and Spirit, all of them there. 
the First Corinthians 12 passage that I skipped, verse 4 through 6, talk about spiritual gifts. There are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them and all men. Do you see that? Again, a Trinitarian activity in the giving of the, of the spiritual gifts. Isn't that wonderful? I said when I was teaching on spiritual gifts on Sunday evening, this is not a minor doctrine in the New Testament. It's a major teaching that each one of you, if you're a Christian, each one of you has a spiritual gift. Well, this verse, or these verses, give you the clear indication that those gifts were the work of the triune God in you. Father, Son, and Spirit giving you your spiritual gifts. Isn't that wonderful? That's an incredible thing. And then you've got... Uh, a similar idea in Ephesians 4.4. 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over and through all and in all. So you've got the one spirit, one Lord, and the God and Father. All right. And then in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen, listen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Do you see it again? God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. The Trinitarian. Um, you know, another one that, that I noticed was in Revelation chapter 1. Take a minute and look there. It's not in here, but I thought about it, and I really love it. <clears throat> I love the book of Revelation. Don't understand it, but I love it. <clears throat> If you look at um, John uh, Revelation, sorry, Revelation chapter one, verse four and uh, five, you're going to see a, a Trinitarian formula again. I believe. I think that's the best way to interpret it. It's not as clear, but I think it is. There, John, it says to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now look what it says: Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. I believe that's God the Father. And from the seven spirits, actually a better translation, perhaps the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Well, you know, if you study the book of Revelation, I think this is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Sevenfold spirit would be a better translation before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a Trinitarian greeting. And it must be because who else is going to rate equality with the others in that listing? No human being would be, would be listed among the others. You see, it must be a Trinitarian greeting. And so, uh, basically, the book of Revelation is coming to you from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Grace to you from God and from the Spirit and from Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. So there's many, many other such verses. Uh, since you're at Revelation 1, just turn over one page and look at Jude 20 and 21. It says, But you, dear friends... Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Stop there. That's a great Wednesday night Acts verse, isn't it? What does it mean to build yourself up in your most holy faith? Do you go to the gym, start pumping iron, spiritual iron? You know, it's this January, this is New Year's resolution month. Do you, you know that the health club memberships go way up in January? Do you realize that? You can't, you can't park, you can't get in there. It's a lot easier in February. Just wait a little bit. Make your shift your news resolution back a month. You get in there, no problem. All right. How do you build yourself up in your most holy faith? How do you do that? By hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. We build ourselves up in faith. We study the word of God. 
And so that's it's a wonderful thing. I feel strengthened after Wednesday night. I really do. I hope you all do. I, I feel like my vision is cleared and I remember again what really matters. You go home and you feel strengthened and energized and you're ready to start, and you say, all we did was study the doctrine of the Trinity and now here I am ready for life again. Why is that? Because God refreshes us. When we get on our, our focus off of God, we get scattered and, and inefficient and we waste things. When we get back on God again, things start to make sense again, don't they? That's a wonderful thing. Anyway, build yourselves up in, in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. It's just everywhere, isn't it? You've got the Holy Spirit. You're going to pray in the Holy Spirit. You're going to keep yourself in the love of God and you're going to um, uh, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's many, many of these verses. So it's so much of an issue in the New Testament that if we were not Trinitarian, we'd start to wonder, what are all these verses? What, what is this? And there's other evidence besides. But do you see it? Do you see Father, Son, and Spirit listed here? And then you've got, of course, the baptism of Jesus. And I skipped that, but there it is. Jesus is baptized. You've got the Father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son. And the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove out of heaven. Okay? So those, those are just simple statements of the doctrine of the Trinity. Then the three statements summarizing the biblical teaching we've already given you. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is... Uh, only one God. Now, the centerpiece, if you're going to begin dealing with the doctrine of Trinity, is the deity of Christ. That's the key step. That's the key step. And we talked about that last time. We must accept the deity of Christ. And I showed you a key verse on that, why accepting and believing in the deity of Christ is essential to your salvation from your sin. Do you remember what the verse was? That's right. John 8... And verse 24. Turn there again and look there. Remind yourselves to how important this doctrine is. <clears throat> John 8:24. This was a new verse for me in this respect within the last two years. I, I came across it and I said, wow, I didn't realize how potent this is, how important this is. But Jesus is there speaking to his enemies, as you remember. And he said, I told you that you would die in your sins. That means go to hell. I told you that you would go to hell. If you do not believe that I am, that's all the Greek says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is Jesus saying there in John 8, 24? What is he saying? If you don't believe that, what? I am God. Not merely the one I claim to be, because that's what the NIV says, and we're not sure who that is. Well, who is he claiming to be? Oh, the Jews knew. They knew who he was claiming to be. There's no question who the I am is to a Jew. They understood he's claiming to be God. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go one step beyond it. My claim, you must validate by your faith or you will lose your soul. You must believe that I, uh, that I am God. Clear indication of this is at the end of John's Gospel. If you look at John chapter 20 and verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> This is the climax, the absolute climax of John's gospel. It's so important to, to see this. You remember the story of doubting Thomas, you remember? Thomas always stands as one of those guys who, who proves you must not miss church on Sunday evening. You're never sure what you're going to miss because he wasn't there on resurrection night, okay? Great things happen in church on Sunday evenings, all right? And so John, uh, John, uh, sorry, Thomas was not there. And so he had to get by hearsay that Jesus had physically risen from the dead. 
And all of his, all the, his apostle friends were telling him, but he didn't believe it. And what did he say? You remember what his statement was? That's right. Unless I put my, my finger in his wounds and my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Well, what's amazing is when Jesus appears right in their midst with the doors locked, fear of the Jews, and Jesus just, boom, there he is. He turns to Thomas and says, by the way, about that thing you said, let's deal with that right now. That's scary. You heard it. I was there when you said it. I am the omnipresent God. Of course I heard you. So let's deal with it now. I don't actually think that Thomas touched him. I don't think he actually put his finger in the wounds. He didn't need to. He didn't need to. And what did Thomas say? What was Thomas's confession in verse 28? My Lord and my God. What are you going to do with that? This is a Jewish man who's standing in front of Jesus and claiming that he is deity, that he is God in the flesh. Now, if Jesus were only an angel, if you're only a righteous teacher or prophet, what should he have done at that moment? What should he have done with Thomas? Rebuked him. And why? Because there is only one God. And if he's not the one God, then he, he deserves to be rebuked. He must be corrected. Did Jesus rebuke him? What did he say? He said, because you have seen me, you believe. Believe what? Believe that he's God, my Lord and my God. Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. Is that you? Are you included in that verse? Have you not seen and yet have believed that Jesus is God? If so, we have a name for you, Christian. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You're saved. You see that? So you must believe in the doctrine of Trinity. You must believe in the deity of Christ. This is an essential doctrine. All right, so the, the beginning of it all, we want to deal specifically with the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now, <clears throat> look on page 6. Another key issue that we want to deal with is the personhood or the personality of the Spirit. Some will claim that the Spirit is merely an impersonal force. The Jews don't have a problem with, um, with take not your Holy Spirit from me because they interpret it perhaps as the presence of God or perhaps some kind of an impersonal force or some action on the part of God. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says the Spirit of God was hovering, or verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep, right? Um, I think that they would be able to take that in. We, what we have to do is prove that the Holy Spirit is a person. In order to do that, we have to begin to try to grasp what a person is. What is a person? What makes something or some entity a person? We talk about the three persons of the Trinity. This is kind of important, right? What is a person? Think, feel, reason, capabilities, okay? Thinking, feeling, reasoning, planning, okay? Distinction or individuality. Okay. Somebody else is going to say something? Communication. That's right, okay? Well, let's look at the personhood of the Spirit. The Spirit on top of page 6 is demonstrated to be a person by various roles and activities that are assigned to Him. For example, teaching. Look at John 
Somebody read this for me, if you would. Verse, uh, John 14, verse 26. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is given, the, the Spirit is given um, what capability or what, what power is described here? What function, really? Teaching. Now, in order for Him to teach, He cannot be an impersonal force. You understand that? Teaching is a, is a logical, rational process. He's going to teach you all things. He does more than that, though. Look at John 15, 26 while you're here in John. 15, 26. Somebody read that for me, if you would. <clears throat> Yeah, those are a great pair of verses there as we see the co-witness of the Spirit and the people of God to Jesus. The Spirit will testify and you also must testify. It's very much like the call of Moses, remember? In which he says, I am coming down to deliver my people. Now then you go to Pharaoh. You see? It's a, just a, a cooperation of effort where God is moving to rescue his people and he's going to send Moses to do it. And so also the Spirit will testify and you also must testify because really it's through your testimony that the Spirit will do His testifying. Okay? But again, the Holy Spirit cannot be an impersonal force and testify to Christ. By the way, John 15, 26 is a very important verse for uh, uh, the issue of who sends the uh, Holy Spirit into the world. I'm just going to digress for a moment. But you've heard of the Roman Catholic Church and then you've heard of the Eastern and the Orthodox churches. The Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox churches, you know that they're two different and they split at a certain point. Around the 11th century, they split. You know what they split over? They split over the doctrine of whether the Holy Spirit was sent only by the Father or by the Father and the Son. Wow. I mean, and it was called the so-called filioque clause Filio is from or by the Son, the quay is and, and by the Son. That the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. That's what the Western churches believe. The Eastern churches believe that the Spirit is only sent by the Father. And you'd say, why in the world would they divide over something like that? Well, they consider doctrine more important than we do, first of all. We just need to accept that. They were very serious about doctrine. There are also political forces at work over the Bishop of Rome and a lot of things going on. But who do you think's right? Was the Holy Spirit sent only by the Father or was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son? Well, how is verse 26 germane to this issue? What does it say? When, when the Counselor, whom I will send you from the Father, comes. You see, who's the I in the sentence? Well, it's Jesus. So he says, unless I go, the Spirit will not come or the Counselor will come. But if I go, I will send him to you. In another place, he says that. So twice, at least, he testifies that he will send the uh, Spirit. This verse also tells us that the Father sends him. So the Father and the Son together. So you're all Western, right? You're not Eastern. You're not Eastern Orthodox. So I didn't have to work too hard. You're just naturally Western. You just believe that the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. But if you went over to Russia, they would uh, get very upset about that teaching. All right. Um, let's look at some other aspects of the personality of the Spirit. Okay? Um, searching the depths of God. 1 Corinthians 2.10. Look there, if you would. 
This is something that the Holy Spirit does. And also knowing the thoughts of God. I'll read this. It says, well, this is an incredible thing. Uh, verse 9, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, but God has prepared for those who love Him. Have you ever heard that verse? Isn't that a great verse? What does it make you think about? Heaven, right? And in effect, it's saying that you can't know or see or understand what God has prepared for those who love Him. But what's the very next part of the verse? The very next little fragment there that people forget. But God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. You see that? So we can't take that verse out of context. Okay? The fact of the matter is we do know things that are revealed to us. What, what Paul's saying there in verse 9 is not that we can't know what heaven's going to be like. That's not what the verse is saying. It's saying you cannot naturally know the things that God's going to give you by the Spirit. But the Spirit reveals them to us. And by the Spirit, we can know what they are. So he goes on from there to talk about the Spirit. And he says, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. What does that mean that the Spirit searches the deep things of God? It's a difficult verse, isn't it? What do, you get the, the sense that the Spirit is moving through the mind of God plumbing the depths, as it were, of the mind of God and bringing things out of the mind of God to you so that you can understand them. That's deep, isn't it? Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments. Yes, but the Spirit can search them out. He is able to search through the mind of God. This is not an impersonal force. This is an active moving, intelligent being who goes into the mind of God and brings out truth and gives it to us. That's amazing. So the Spirit is searching the depths of God. And then in verse 11, it says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit there is said to know the thoughts of God. An impersonal force cannot do that. This is an intelligent being who knows the mind and the thoughts of God. Isn't that exciting? There's so much truth in the Word of God. We'll never get to it all. 1 Corinthians 12:11. don't turn there, but it talks, and we've already read about how the Holy Spirit is active in distributing uh, spiritual gifts. But some of the greatest evidences you're going to find of the personality of the Spirit are found in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts. Let's look at one in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 shows very clearly, I think, that the Holy Spirit is God. This is the account, the tragic count, account of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven or not. I sure hope they are. But they died that day, didn't they? Life ended for Ananias and Sapphira. This would be called an extreme form of church discipline. Either way, they were sacrificed by God for the purity of the church. God was willing to dispense with them their life on earth like that so that the church would be pure and holy. And by the way, that's our God. That's the way He is. We forget that, the holiness of God. I remember noticing one time, a long time ago, three characters from history. Their names were Adam, Achan, and Ananias. They, their names all begin with A. And they all have something unique in common. Adam, Achan, and Ananias. What are they all known for? Sin, right? Adam, the very first sin, you know what trouble that brought on. You're still living it, right? Okay, then you've got Achan. Now, who is he? Who is Achan? From Jericho. 
And as a result, God judged the whole nation and they lost their next battle at Ai. And so what did God command be done in order to purge the evil from Israel? Dead. Death. Death, death, death. And actually, that's another thing all three have in common, right? Adam, Achan, Ananias. Death, the death penalty, right? Has God changed? Is he any different? Does he think less about sin now? It's not as big a deal now as it used to be? Oh, no, not at all. But at key moments in history, the beginning of all creation, the beginning of Israel in the Promised Land, the beginning of the church, God established the same pennant in each place. He put the same banner of holiness in all three places. He's the same God. All right? So, and you think, boy, Ananias and Sapphira, boy, I've done worse things than that. What did they do? Do you remember what they did? What did they do wrong? Yeah, they didn't report. They cheated on their income tax. I don't know. They, you know, they didn't report the full amount, you know. They didn't report it. And, and so what ended up happening is they sold some money. It was a time of great benevolence and great need in the life of the church. There were a lot of poor people. And people were selling their possessions and goods and bringing them to the apostles' feet and laying them at the apostles' feet and giving it to anyone as they uh, needed. And so this was going on regularly at the end of chapter 2 and then at chapter, end of chapter 4. Barnabas, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. But they only brought part of the money and they laid it at the apostles' feet. So far, so good. Maybe. Maybe God was convicting them to give the whole amount. So we don't know for sure. But that's not their sin. The sin was that they declared that this partial amount was actually the full amount. Now, that's sin. They lied. Now, look what the account says. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Do you see that? Lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money... Uh, you receive for the land. And then verse 4, very interesting. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Stop there. What, what two principles is, is Peter getting at there in verse 4? Private ownership, right? It was your field to do with as you saw fit. Nobody compelled you to sell it. You sold it supposedly because you wanted to. Nobody made you do it. You're not under compulsion. And after you converted your field into money, the money was yours too. All of it. You could do what you want. As you, and if you said, I have decided to give half of this money for the relief of the poor, everybody would say, praise God for your generosity. The problem is none of that. What is the problem? The lying. And to whom did they lie in the text? To the Holy Spirit. We're not done yet. We're going to keep going. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Does that prove the personhood of the Holy Spirit, by the way? Of course it does. You can't lie to electricity. You can't lie to wind. You can't lie to a rock. But you can lie to a person, can't you? You can lie to a person. And so they lied to a person. They lied to the Holy Spirit. But then he makes it even more explicit. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. That is clearly the deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit all in one account. Do you see it? Do you see the importance of it? Okay, in the same way... It says in Ephesians, right on your page there, verse 30, uh, chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Right there on page 6, middle of the page, Ephesians 4.30. What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? He's capable of what? Of grief. He's capable of grief. What is grief? 
What is grief? Sorrow. Like you do over, over a loved one who's died. You grieve over it. That's the way the Spirit feels when we sin. Wow. Do you feel grief when you sin? Not right away. Eventually, though, if you're Christian, the Holy Spirit will make you feel what He feels. Because you're one, aren't you? Doesn't He indwell you? And so you may go on la-di-da for a while, but if you're truly a Christian, He's going to bring you down to where, you, where He is about that issue. And then He's going to make you confess it, right? He's going to make you miserable, and then He's going to make you confess it. And why? Because you must be one together. So what happens is, you're going along in your life content and happy. All right? And the Spirit's with you, content and happy about you. All right? And then you sin. And where does the Spirit go? Immediately, instantly, down. Grieved. Where do you go? What's going on? You're fine, right? So you and the Spirit are out of step right now in their opinion about you. <laughs> okay? You have a higher opinion of your performance than the Spirit does. Okay, what's the Spirit going to do? Bring you down to where He is and then bring you back up together. So the verse says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. He's going to bring you down to grieve over the sin so that together you will grieve and together you'll come back up and be recovered. Right? This is all experiential. Of course, in your position in Christ, you're perfect. But in your experience, you must grieve the sin. Why? Because the Spirit is grieved by it. But all of that aside, and concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, this cle clearly proves the personhood of the, of the Holy Spirit. This is an intense emotional state. Is the Spirit an emotional being? Yes, of course He is. He is a person. And so He can be grieved by your sin. Okay, other indications of the personhood of of the Spirit are found in the book of Acts and Acts 13.2, if you turn there for a minute. <clears throat> this is the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. You remember this story. In the church at Antioch, there were apostles and uh, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, and by the way, you notice that he's called Saul there. Have you ever heard that whole thing that he's Saul until he's converted and then he's Paul? That's just wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I think he was Saul when he was dealing with Jews and he was Paul when he was dealing with Romans. That's my take on it. Okay. I think he continued on. That simplistic Saul then Paul thing just doesn't work according to the scripture. He's called Saul here long after his conversion. Do you see that? Sorry to burst your bubble, but that's part of my job. I need, to, I need to take those simplistic things and just pop them so that we're on more solid ground. Okay. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, something every church should do more, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, stop right there. This is very interesting. You don't usually get this clear a statement of the Holy Spirit speaking, but here it just says in the account directly, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You see that? So the Holy Spirit does many things in this verse. He's calling Barnabas and Saul to a work. He's calling them to a work. He is God. He can do that. And he does more than that. He communicates the call to the church. You see that? And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then look at verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So anyway, the Holy Spirit is clearly a person. He's speaking. One interesting thing, a little sidebar right now. I decided one time to study and see if there was any evidence anywhere in the Bible of anyone praying to the Holy Spirit and I found none. 
It's interesting to me. I don't know what the significance is of that. But I have no scriptural evidence anywhere, A to Z, of anyone ever praying directly to the Spirit, saying, Oh, Spirit. I never find it. I think that instead what the Spirit does is He is the Spirit of prayer and He is motivating us to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. I'm not you know, rigid about that and I don't think you should feel like a heretic if you ever said, Oh, Spirit, or prayed. But study for yourself and see. You know, you can get computer software and you can look up. Yes, go ahead. We have uh, evidence in Scripture that God spoke with an audible voice through his baptism and other places. We have evidence certainly that Jesus spoke with an audible voice. Um, do you believe that Acts uh, 13.2 indicates that the Spirit spoke with an audible voice? Quite possibly. Or it could be that they just so, so understood the ministry of the prophets that there were prophets there and the prophets spoke and they knew it was the voice of the Holy Spirit and they ascribed it to the Spirit. It could be either one and I'd accept either one. Because to me, the word of a prophet is equal to the wor a word spoken from heaven. And I get that out of the book of Deuteronomy. The voice comes out of Deuteronomy from the thick cloud in the darkness and they are terrified and said, please, from now on, speak through Moses. And God said, what they've said is good. I'll speak through prophets. But So God can speak directly or he can speak through a prophet. Either way. It'd be exciting, though, to be there and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. What would that sound like? That'd be something. Yeah, wonderful. But I, I really believe Acts 13, verse 2, uh, needs to be an important part of First Baptist Church life. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, wouldn't you like to be in a church like that? And then people are getting sent out to do ministries and we're just in the presence of God. And I think we're heading that way. That's what I want to see. I'm really yearning to see quarterly prayer meetings on Friday evenings at our church in which we are just there to pray and we're just there to sing and worship and just seek the Lord and just be there. Wouldn't that be exciting? I'm looking forward to that. And so, God willing, we're going to see that happen. Look at Acts, uh, Acts 15, verse 28. This is more evidence of the personhood of the uh, Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 15 is the whole circumcision controversy and they have a council at Jerusalem to resolve it. What is the circumcision controversy? Well, if you've been studying the book of Galatians in Sunday school, you'll know. Um, but either way, this is what it was. There were a certain group of, of people who claimed to be Christians and perhaps were Christians, although Paul you know, is very upset in Galatians on their doctrine. So they may not have been Christians. At any rate, they, they said that the Gentiles must be compelled to be circumcised in order to be accepted into the church. Whoa. I mean, wouldn't that hinder evangelism? Now, stop and think about it, okay? <laughs> Okay, talk about pouring buckets of water on, on evangelism, but that's another meditation for another day. Maybe you shouldn't meditate on it. At any rate, the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit did not want that done. Okay, We were free from circumcision. There was no need anymore to submit to the Mosaic uh, ceremonial law. Those laws, I believe, were given to separate the Jews out as a distinct, unique people. And the moment Jesus was born, you didn't need them anymore. I really believe that. The moment he was born. Now, he still, there was still a momentum, and so he had to be circumcised because God had not clearly revealed yet that the time was over. But I believe that the dietary regulations and all that stuff were to identify Jesus as a Jew. And so all of them were to protect the Jewish people as a people. I don't know any other explanation that fits. If you start telling me that the law was given to break us down and bring us to Christ, I don't think that's what's going on. Because the moment that Jesus declared all foods clean... You know, we don't need it anymore. You see that? And people said, oh, you know what it is? It's because they didn't have refrigeration back then. Okay? And God was very intelligent and knew that there were certain types that would have higher bacteria count. Let me ask you a question. Was there a big change from the first century B.C. to the first century A.D. on that matter? Was refrigeration invented around the time of Christ? That doesn't make sense. Then why did Jesus declare all foods clean? 
because they didn't need those ceremonial regulations anymore now that the Messiah had come. He'd been identified. He was Jewish. And from then on, you didn't need circumcision or any of those regulations. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. All foods are clean except some of those junk foods are really not good for you <laughs> and other things. But they come to a resolution in this matter and they write a letter. You see the letter beginning at uh, verse 22. The apostles and elders uh, with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and some others, Silas. And with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. And then it goes down and says, We have heard that someone out without us, uh, from us without our authorization disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are, te what we are writing. Now listen. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, verse 28 says what about the Holy Spirit? It seemed good to him to do this. That's very interesting, isn't it? It implies that the Spirit weighs out a course of action and decides to do this. And so the Holy Spirit weighed it and made a decision. But that's not all it says. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. What else? And us. That's very interesting. Take that and meditate on it. It's just the confluence together of human authority and God who works through that human authority. Very interesting verse. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and it seemed good to us. Very interesting verse. Now, you might ask, why is it we Gentiles don't need to abstain from food sacrifice to idols and all that? That's another talk for another time. But that was the letter they sent out in Acts 15. Okay? All right, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And one last one we'll look at. Actually, two last ones. Acts 16, 6 and 7. <clears throat> Just one more page over. Maybe even on the same page. It is on my Bible. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What's going on there? That's, that's strange, isn't it? The Holy Spirit's putting up a block. Here he's called the Spirit of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit is preventing them. He's active and involved. And so they're really kind of boxed in at this point and don't know what to do. And when you're boxed in and don't know what to do, what should you do? Pray. Pray. <laughs> that's right. And that's exactly what they did. And the Lord revealed to them what he had in mind for them to do. Okay? One last verse, a very strong one in James chapter 4, verse 5. Turn over there if you would or look on, on the page on page 6. But either way, it's just a tremendous verse. <clears throat> This is talking about the worldliness of God's people. They're fighting and killing and coveting because they've got all this sin in them. And so James in verse 4, James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us Envies intensely. Now, this is a very interesting verse. And I know that there are different translations and different possibilities. But I think that the word spirit should be capitalized in here. And I think what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit deeply 
I guess with the jealousy of a husband hovers over our spirits. He, he really does. And he is jealous. And it really fits well in the context, doesn't it? To go off after the world is to love another. It's really to commit spiritual adultery. He calls them adulterous people, remember? And that fits into the whole line of Israel's experience of running after pagan gods, you see. And God called it adultery then. And so what he's saying is that the spirit who lives in you is a jealous spirit. Just like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a jealous God. He's jealous over you. You make him jealous when you are worldly. That's what he's saying. He envies over you intensely. It's a strong verse, very interesting verse. And I think it fits well in the context that the Holy Spirit uh, is grieved, yes, but even more than that, is jealous over you when you uh, go after the world. Any questions about the personhood or the personality of the Spirit? We've talked about the two, the two issues. You have to, in order to get to the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to accept the deity of Christ and the personhood of the Spirit, right? The deity of the Spirit. Do you see that? That's what we've talked about tonight. Any questions about the personhood of the um, Holy Spirit? Do you understand it? In a manner of speaking, yes. But you can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You really can. You can walk in the knowledge of the Spirit, knowing who He is. and that He's. Isn't that something to know that He lives within you? If you're a child of God, He dwells within you. That's, so, that's such a powerful thing. All right, now... I want to talk, we've, we've covered a lot of these things already. I want to talk finally tonight about heresies. Take the final sheet you've got there. All right? And it says three major heresies. You see that? you got the triangle again. And remember, there are three statements of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, each person fully God. You see that? One God, three persons, each person fully God. Now, if you look at it, it's a little bit com more complicated diagram, but the, the heresy is listed opposite the side of the thing it denies. Okay? You see how it works? So Arianism denies that each person is fully God. The modern uh, Arians are the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny what about Christ? What do they deny about him? That he's fully God. He's not Jehovah God. He's not Yahweh. They say he's a God, but not fully God. So they deny that each person is fully God. You see that? That's Arianism. Okay. Uh, three persons on the right-hand side. You see that? Three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity says that they are three distinct persons. Okay. If you wanted to find out what heresy denies that, you go down the opposite way. And what denies that? Modalism. For, for example, the United Pentecostal Church. I actually went by a UPC bus recently, actually two of them. I think there's a UPC church around here. I'm not sure, 100%. But they believe they're Jesus-only people. Basically believe that Jesus is God the Father and is the Spirit. They're all the same. It's just the same God who's revealed himself at different times in different modes. You see that? Modalism. He reveals himself in the Old Covenant, let's say, as God the Father, the God of Sinai. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's God the Father. In the time of Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, he reveals himself as Jesus Christ, the same God. And then um, uh, in the time of the book of Acts, etc., reveals himself as God the Holy Spirit. It's the same God. What are they denying, though? What are they denying? Three persons. Three persons. 
and they're neglecting some key texts which show Jesus talking to the Father and the Father talking back, as we discussed last time. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. John 17. Even more, as we pointed out last time in John 12, He said, Father, glorify your name. And He answers back saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That's a conversation between the Father and Son recorded in Scripture. How does modalism accept that teaching? It's impossible. Unless Somebody said that he would be a ventriloquist. He could cast his voice up and it would come back down. It doesn't make any sense. Clearly, he's trying to give you a sense of two persons having a conversation. Why would he, why would he do that? Modalism is a heresy. And then the third one teaches that there is uh, one God, the third statement. The opposite from that would be tritheism. Now, what is another word for tritheism, a more common word? Polytheism. And really, very few Christians have done this. But you should know about it. I mean, there have been some that just believe that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God and they're co-equal, but they're just three gods. All right? And that's heresy as well. Now, there are some other lesser false teachings. For example, adoptionism and Apollinarianism and others. There's been a lot of work on this whole uh, trinity. But these are the major heresies and they deny each one of them a major teaching. Any questions about what we've covered tonight? Yes, Paul. Uh, I've got a question here. You talked about the doctrine of the Trinity being necessary for salvation. Uh, do you have any special wisdom or understanding about the era in church history, like the first couple of centuries before the Trinity was systemized, systematized the way we know it now, when, when, when the mm-hmm. basic doctrine of God was being But we should understand that there was a historical process for articulating and publicizing the doctrine of the Trinity, but they had the New Testament as we do. Mm -hmm. So the verses that I gave you at the very beginning of may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, they've been there since the very beginning. And so there were Trinitarian Christians, if I I believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is required for salvation at this point, and I say at this point because I don't think Abraham, it wasn't fully revealed, but at this point... It is in the name of Christ. We're calling on the name of Christ. Well, what is that name if he's not divine? So the evangelist's job is to teach the deity of Christ to the unbeliever. He's got to convince him that he's God in the flesh who took on a human body and died on the cross. If you don't do that, you're not evangelizing, among other things. Other things. So I think what happens is at the time of the councils that organized and systematized the doctrines, okay, um, they came up with a formula which said that which has always been believed among the churches of God's people. That's what they said. So this is not, was not a new thing. And the Jehovah's Witnesses will talk about, in effect, smoke-filled rooms and politics and votes and 51% voted and all that. Don't let that disturb you in any way. Okay? God is sovereign over that whole process. But God's people have always believed in the Trinity since Jesus walked the earth. Now, that, that, that was, that's what the message that was preached, the deity of Christ. Good question. Any others? Wonderful time tonight. Thank you for coming. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, and next next time, we'll, God willing, we'll finish up on the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for teaching us this deep truth. It's very, very difficult, O Lord, to understand. And we'll never fully understand it. But I thank you, Father, that you um, have revealed it to us and that we are learning who you are. Uh, It's a mystery to us, O Lord. When you said to Philip, uh, have I been with you so long and you don't know me, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
oh, it's very difficult for us to understand these things. But Lord, we thank You for them. And I pray that each of my brothers and sisters here might walk in the full assurance of knowing that Father and Son and Spirit have worked powerfully for their salvation. Father planning, the Son executing, and the Spirit applying salvation directly to them. Thank You for these mercies. Be with us now as we go out into the world. Help us to be faithful to preach the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.